I can't wait for the sermon today. Uh, one of my heroes, one of my friends, and uh, just a, a really solid guy all around, Peyton Jones, is with us today. He's going to be bringing the word. And um, just a couple things about that. So first of all, our theme this year as a church is equip. We want to see, like straight out of Ephesians 4, we want to see that God has given all of these gifts to the church to equip God's people for the works of ministry so that the body of Christ can be built up into the head, which is Christ. And so our whole hope this year is that God would be at work through this church, through the sermons, through the gospel communities on mission, through everything we're doing to equip you for the works of service that he's planned in advance for you to do. And so that's, that's our heart, and I, um, I can't wait for today's sermon because uh, Peyton Jones is a master at this. He's church planted. He's taught church planters how to church plant. He um, actually was part of, if anybody, anybody likes classic preaching, does anybody know who Martin Lloyd-Jones was? Martin Lloyd-Jones. So if you don't, Google him. Listen to some of those sermons. They're brilliant. And uh, Peyton um, was a pastor at Martin Lloyd-Jones' church, actually has his pulpit Bible, something I'm still envious of. That's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 would, I would love it if you guys would just open your hearts to whatever the Holy Spirit's going to say to us today and whatever uh, Peyton wants to do, just like get on board. I don't know. He's, he's a unique person. He does all kinds of unique stuff, so you never know what to expect. So get ready. And if you will... Will you just give a warm New City welcome to Peyton Jones as he comes to speak to us? Can you hear me? No? Am I doing it wrong? Chest? Check? Yeah? Oh, you can't hear me? All right. After that introduction, I'm excited to hear me. Wow. Well, we want to hear the Lord, don't we? That's, that's really who we want to hear. And my, my job is to get up here and Hopefully not screw that up, right? So let's, uh, let's just pray. Let's start off and pray. And then uh, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 afterwards, but uh, let's ask God to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us. Lord, we thank you that just two songs this morning were able just to take the deepest part of our heart and our soul and focus us back on Jesus. And Lord... Bring us back to that place where you restore the joy of our salvation. Lord, I thank you that we have that sense of being saved repeatedly sometimes. Coming back and being in a place of wonder and awe at that cross that for some of us we've returned to for 10, 20, 30, 40, however many years, Lord, that we stand gazing up at you. And we're still overwhelmed. We're still unpacking what the cross means, what your death meant, what your resurrection, what your ascension means, what Pentecost meant, what your return means. Lord, there is so much between what you did 2,000 years ago, what you're doing now, and what you're going to continue to do. Lord, we haven't even gotten into eternity yet. But we realize, Lord, that we are suspended in the midst of the drama of the ages that has been unfolding for generations before us. And Lord, here we are. There is work to do. Your desire is to fill the earth with your glory. We're a part of that. Like it or not, we are a part of that. Even the wrath of man praises you. Lord, we can't help but to glorify you in the cosmic plan of a sovereign God. But we ask, Lord, that we would fulfill the ministry of Jesus. As you ascended on high, You led captivity captive, and you gave gifts to men and women. And so, Jesus, we ask this morning that you would be with us to help us understand that and to know our place in it. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
All right. Well, you know, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4, that'll give me a second here to get into the preamble and tell you really that this, this Bible that you have in front of you, how many of you have noticed that the more you read it, the more you just keep discovering? You think, oh, I mastered it, right? And then you, you go to seminary, by the way, and you just realize how much you don't know. That's what you graduate with. There's a piece of paper saying, okay, I didn't learn all, I didn't master the Bible, I just started to realize there's a lot more than what I thought. Because I read Warren Wiersbe, and I was like, oh, cool, done. I understand it. And then you begin to realize that you unpack it more and more. It's an amazing book. Even the first couple chapters unpack what the entire rest of the Bible is about. We're in the garden with Adam and Eve, and God has a standard of holiness, and Adam and Eve, they sin, and immediately... Their story becomes our story. They make excuses for their sin right away, just like we do. It wasn't me. This is why. But, 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 but he, but she. They instantly become four-year-olds, five-year-olds, right? Pointing the finger, but she, but he, but, but I don't do that, right? And God, for the first time to Adam and Eve's horror, has to slay. They've never seen death before. And God slays an animal in front of them and provides a covering for their sin, covering for their shame and their nakedness. And I remember the first time I saw that, and I was like, you know, wow, that's all right there in the beginning. And the rest of the Bible just starts unpacking just what was in the nucleus of just the first couple. And they didn't have them chapters, you know, it was just... The opening scene gets unpacked. It wasn't, you know, that came away years ago, years later. Some French guy on a horse was like, I'm going to make chapters and verses. And he did the bulk of it while he's riding on a horseback, believe it or not. Divvied up the Bible, made chapters and verses. But it was opening scene. Boom. It was right there. Well, then you go on, you begin to, to discover that everything in the Old Testament, you know, like when Jesus says, you... He talks to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking you might have eternal life by them, but they testify of me. And then when Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, it says, beginning with the law in, in, in the books of Moses, that's Genesis, everything, he began to expound to them all about himself, all these verses the whole Bible, and their minds are blown, and they said our hearts burned on the road with him because he unpacked that story of redemption that you guys know because you had good preachers, and their hearts are on fire. The Bible leaps into their hearts, ignites it with things they'd never seen before. And Jesus kept telling the disciples, you don't understand these things now, but you'll understand them later. And of course, then you see, the whole Bible's jumping alive to, to Peter. Pentecost still, I don't know about you, but Pentecost still kind of trips me out. I never in a million years, when someone says, what is this? Gone where Peter went. Well, my proof text of what's happening right now happens to be found from the obscure prophet Joel. You know, a book about locusts ravaging Israel and how that's going to bring hope to the world. Never would have gone there. But Peter could see in Joel. He was reading the scripture differently now. He was seeing Jesus everywhere. He was seeing God's cosmic plan of redemption in everything he read. All of the Old Testament. And by the way, the whole of the Bible, chief end of man, right? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when you start off in the Bible at the dawn of creation... God is glorifying himself to man. He makes Adam Adam and Eve wake up, and they just know they're instantly loved just simply because they're alive. Fear, what, what a piece of work is man, said Shakespeare. Fearful in wonder and symmetry. Here we are, Adam just, he wakes up, and he's just, can you imagine that? The first thing, and he looks into the face of this God who walks with him in the cool of the day and befriends him and loves him. And he just knows he's loved. You see, what happens at the fall is the opposite. 
Like Martin Luther said, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. All of a sudden, it was like shutters came down over Adam's eyes. Rather than his eyes being open to the glory of God, they became darkened and shut. And suddenly he misunderstood who God was, what God was about. He didn't know how God was going to act in this brave new world he had created for himself. This world of sin and self-rule. And God immediately tells him the seed. He tells him, I mean, he tells him, he prophesies about Jesus. And all of the rest of the Old Testament builds up to Jesus. Because that is where God is going to glorify himself again. That is the focal point, the fulcrum of God's plan is all hinged on Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, ascension. And guess what? What happens after? Because he wasn't done. Yes, the work of Christ for our redemption was finished at the cross. Jesus paid everything for us there. But his work of glorifying himself is not done. And that's what the church, after this point in history, carries on. This glory that was for all mankind in the Old Testament, which then narrowed into a, 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 a family. You all know the story, right? At the end of Genesis chapter 11, he picks Abraham. Why am I doing all that? You'll, you'll see, you'll see. We'll get there. We're getting into Ephesians where Paul steps back. What we talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones, what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the peak, the Mount Everest of the New Testament, where Paul gets caught up into this cosmic plan and he prays that prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 about God's glory. Remember, he's writing to the Ephesians. They had the temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world, in their city. Alexander the Great comes rolling through. He says, hey, I know everybody comes in here and sacks your temple. It was originally the temple of Sybil, went to the temple of Aphrodite, went to the temple of Diana, and when Paul begins to preach her and people get saved, by the way, a megachurch boomed overnight there. The silversmiths, couldn't make money. So they started a riot. Great is Diana. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You know the gospel's kicking when it causes a riot. Archbishop of Canterbury years ago said, whenever I go to a city, they throw a tea party. Whenever Paul went, they threw a riot. What am I doing wrong? Here's the deal. Alexander the Great said, I'll rebuild it. And they said, no, thank you. We'll rebuild our own temple. We are the Ephesians. It's like a, a sense of pride. And Paul comes in, and if you've not really studied the book of Ephesus in depth, Paul uses temple language all throughout the entire book. All throughout it. In the beginning, he talks about all these blessings that are yours. It's like he's bringing out the temple articles one by one. Remember the, the Old Testament? The temple it had all these treasures in it. Paul's coming out saying, these are yours, these are yours, these are yours, these are the temple treasures, they're given to you. And then he goes on, the, the whole focus of the book is those are just the blessings, but here's the most amazing thing. You guys have the temple of Diana in your city, you are the temple of the living God. You outshine the temple of Diana. The church of God through the ages will be the place now, not here, but the place we're going forward, God will shine out his glory to the entire universe. Not world. Universe. It says even to the principalities and the powers. I mean, the wisdom of God through Jesus, through the salvation of the church, is proclaimed to all the universe. It says even angels long to look into these things. Even they're tripping. Even they are blown away by what God has done. And then they're looking at us going, really, Lord? Them? Did they're part of your plan? You, you and I have that reaction, right? We read the New Testament. We're looking at the knuckleheads, the disciples going, really? Peter, Lord? That's the point. Okay. I'm already way off track time-wise, so we're going to hurry up and hustle. But going forward, God's plan to glorify himself is all encapsulated in who Jesus was. Now, you know this through reading the New Testament, right? Because every time Paul writes an epistle, what's he doing? 
This is what he does. He doesn't start out and say, you know, I've been meditating and I, I thought, or, you know, the angel appeared to me and told me, or, you know, I was deep in worship. What does he do? Every time Paul writes an epistle, he takes the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and he applies it to whatever church he's writing to. You ever notice that? When he wants the people in Philipp, the, the letter of the Philippians in Philippi to get along, he goes, for consider Jesus, who being very God of God, humbled himself. That's all he's doing. He's taking Jesus, the focal point of God's glory, and saying, here's the application of the life, death, and resurrection. Boom, that's every single epistle. Romans chapter 1 through 8, what is it? And then 9, 10, 11, where he gets sidetracked, but it's a good sidetrack. It's always a holy and spirit-inspired detour for Paul. Not always for me, but definitely for Paul. <laughs> what happens? He applies it. He comes back and applies. Every, therefore, Romans chapter 12, in full view of God's mercy. I've just spent... 11 chapters expounding God's mercy through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Oh, even dipped into the Old Testament, but going forward, this is how you will glorify God on planet Earth. To the, through the ages, to the universe, in the spiritual realm, on Earth, boom. It's all the church. There is no plan B. There's only plan A. And that's you. And that's me. As a Holy Spirit, fills the church the ministry that Jesus had of glorifying the Father continues. Amen? So let's turn to Ephesians 4. If you like that part, then you'll like what Paul says. <laughs> Heard some amens. Well, then you'll like this. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> let's back up. Let's, let's start with verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Oh, and by the way, in the previous passage, Paul's just been hitting his prayer where he says, I pray that you would know the height, the depth, the width. What, where's that coming from? Remember the Old Testament when they measured the temple? He says that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. These are temple measurements. It, but he goes on to say, because in the Old Testament, you read it in Exodus. Measure the temple shall be, he gives you the plans. Then in Leviticus, it says, and it has to be this way. It gives you the plans again. Then in Deuteronomy and Numbers, it tells you they built them according to the pattern. It was this. It repeats it four times. So to them, this was ingrained in them. They knew the Old Testament. Paul had been with him. He had taught him the Old Testament. They knew these are temple measurements. This is the holy of holies. It shall be thus many cubits, you know, on and on. But he says, I pray you know the height, the depth, the width, that which passes knowledge. Can't even be contained. And he goes on and says, doesn't he? Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And you're like, whoa, that is a, Tall order, Paul. And he knows that. So in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power of work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that brings us to right here today. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. That's where Paul was going at the beginning of chapter 3, but he got sidetracked by, he was getting ready to talk about God glorifying himself in the church then he realized that you'd be, or the readers would be distracted from the fact Paul was in chains. So he explains God's cosmic plan that he was a small cog in a big wheel. And so that brings us back here. I urge you to walk worthy. Because you're it, like we said before. You're the way God's going to glorify himself. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But this grace was given to each of us. See, it goes from a corporate level, mega corporate, to micro now. This grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's grace or gift. It's the same word in the language. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Quote from an Old Testament psalm where it speaks of God coming down onto the battlefield. David says, you came down, you whooped up, you smashed the enemy, and you went back up again. But when you went up, you went up like a victor. The victorious one, who when he ascended, led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. That's what a conqueror or ruler would do. He would come, he would lead his captivity, he's captive out of a city, and as he would go, he would shower the plunders of the spoil with the other victors. So here we are. God has ascended. The fight's not over. He's given us gifts to continue the work of bringing glory to his name. That's where Paul's going. In saying he ascended, what does it mean except he's descended to the lower regions of the earth? If you know the Nicene Creed, it adds that into hell, but we're not going there for the sake of argument today. uh, Theologians for many, many years have not interpreted it that way. Protestant theologians. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. That, get this, he might fill all things. Just out of curiosity, what do you think he's going to fill everything with? What do you mean fill all things? He might fill all things. That is a reference to filling the earth with his glory. Right? That's what God told Abraham he was going to do. Verse 11. And here we come to our verse. So I just wanted you to get the context. And he gave, these are the gifts, to the church. What gifts did he give to the church? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. That's you and me. That's everybody. I'm a saint. For the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, notice how we said earlier that Jesus, right here, that's where he's gone to. Jesus ascended. Jesus was all five of these things. I want you to think of it this way. It's kind of like Jesus came down a special forces commando, right? He was an army of one. He was like your, your favorite video game hero or blockbuster hero. Came down, did it alone. Isaiah sees him. He says, I saw one in white with his robes dipped in blood. Who is this, he says? He says, I have tread the fury of the wrath of God and, or the fury of the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty, and I've done it alone. Jesus' victory was earned alone. Jesus did it by himself. He was an army of one. No one else could have done what Jesus did in defeating the enemy. But as he ascends to heaven, I just picture him hooking onto a chopper. Up he goes, but he's hitting kit bags down to us, you know? You know, take more ground. He throws the kit bags down. You open up your kit bag, and one says apostle on it. And it's kind of like opening up, it's like the sapper kit, you know? to blow up demolitions and bridges, you know? And then you got another one that says, you know, uh, evangelist. And it's like a sniper equipment in there, you know? Because it's special teams. Football has special teams. Military has special teams. Jesus was an army of one. We're not. We have gifts that vary. I remember years ago, I used to do, um, when I was overseas in Wales, we, we had college ministry and I kid you not, the, the most successful college ministry we ever had was Halo tournaments, because we do a missional community every other week, and this is back when Halo was, if you don't know Halo, Halo was like Microsoft Bungie Entertainment's like blockbuster game that 
opened up the Xbox, kind of blew onto the scene, and uh, he was a cybernetically enhanced super soldier. He had this exosuit that he wore, and it meant that he could pick up anything, put, put his hands on any vehicle, spaceship, rocket ship, helicopter, motorcycle, gun, alien, or human, and his suit would immediately absorb the technology, and he could operate anything. And they called him Master Chief. You see, that's what Jesus was. He was Master Chief. He could do it all. But when you play in the game, you're not Master Chief. It got to a point where they say, you don't get to be Master Chief. You don't get to be Master Chief. You don't get to do it all. We got special teams for that. And as you look at Jesus, in Hebrews 1, it says, and I'm going to break down these five, apostle, prophet that he has here. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Jesus is our apostle and forerunner. And if, you have, if you're taking notes, you can rattle these down. I'm not going to turn to all of them. Moses prophesied, he says, in those days the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among yourselves. And in John 6, 14, it said, this, speaking of Jesus, this is the prophet whom the Lord sent into our midst. Right? So Jesus is our apostle and forerunner. Apostle, by the way, means sent one. Sent one. He was sent from heaven and earth. He is the ultimate missionary. He is the prime missionary. He is also the prophet who brought the heart of God to the people. He is also the evangelist, right? Everywhere Jesus went, he went preaching the good news. That means preaching the gospel. That's what an evangelist does. He is the shepherd, right? There's those fives there, the pastor, shepherd. I am the good shepherd, right? Jesus went on to say. And then lastly, teacher. And he taught them saying, Matthew 5, 2. Matthew 7, 46. And they were stunned and said, surely no man ever spake. And then Jesus said, call no man teacher. For you have one teacher. See, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the embodiment of all this. But when Jesus left planet Earth, you know what happened? Anybody watch old Bugs Bunny cartoons? Yeah? I used to love it when Bugs Bunny would run through the wall, and he would, he would leave this shape hole. Remember this? Remember that? He'd go, and he'd go through the wall, and he'd leave a... A Bugs Bunny-shaped hole. When Jesus ascended, he left a Jesus-shaped hole in the world. And remember, these gifts were given that he might full, or fill all things. So let's go back to the text. <coughs> and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work in the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, listen to this, until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me draw you another picture here. Remember when you were little, and your teacher would have you stand against the wall, right? You, 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 would, you would stand against the wall, and they draw a little you, right, on butcher paper. Anyone remember these days? I don't know what they do now. Probably do something with an iPad. <laughs> and if, you, if you've grown up in your house, you have the door jam, where they do the measurement on the door jam. But see, what Paul's saying is, these gifts were given so that the body of Christ might fill that Jesus-shaped hole. These five roles, Paul, sorry guys over there, these five roles, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the shepherd, the teacher, they all pull on the church, and they pull different things out of the church, and each role is specific in what it's able to pull out of the church. For example, anytime you know an evangelist, and he comes down the hall going, hey, want to come? And you're, right? You're gone. Like, oh, uh, no, no, my grandma just called. She's sick. she got to go to the hospital. i got to go. You find the excuse, because you don't want to go and evangelize. Amen? Uh, no amens there. No one's going to admit that. But you know the evangelist. He's like, hey, want to go? No. no. Right? You have your excuse ready. You're like, I'll go, I'll go with the teacher. You know? Because this is, this is New City. Like, you know, we're good on teaching. Boom, we'll go with the teacher. Because, you know, we want to go to the coffee shop and read about the Bible. Read some Tim Keller. I'm down with that. But you don't just need teachers. Because... The, bot, the world 
needs to see Jesus for who he is, and he's all five. And so the body needs evangelists to pull, kind of like being drawn and cord in the old days. Hate to use that analogy. But we're meant to be pulled from all five sides so that we fill this Jesus-shaped hole in the world, that Bugs Bunny-shaped hole. We're just here. He left a Jesus-shaped hole, and we got to fill that so that Christ might fill all things. And so God gifted the church with these roles, and they're a team. They interact with each other. Like, for example, uh, apostolic types. By the way, <coughs> I say type because I think it's weird when someone goes, hi, I'm an apostle, right? That's just weird, right? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Apostolic type leader. By the way, don't be freaked out by the word apostle. It's in your Bible. You know what word's not in your Bible? Missionary. Hmm. That's weird. How many raise your hand think missionary is kind of like a big deal in the Bible? Yeah, yeah. Don't be shy. I'm not tricking you. I mean, right? You first come to faith, you know, like, this missionary thing is hot. Like, this is a big deal, right? I got acts in front of me. I see Jesus on mission. I got communities on mission. This is a big deal. But the word's not in your Bible. Or is it? Remember how we talked about that Bible that just keeps giving? Just keeps showing you stuff? What if the word missionary was there, but it was a different word? What if it was the word sent one? Apostolos in the Greek. What do you think? I know what you're thinking. You're going, no, 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 pal. Because, you know, there were 12 apostles. That's right, there were. And they were special. That's why the Bible calls them the 12. <laughs> the Bible authors wanted you to know there are 12 of these. There will not be more. They were special. Except there was one more added. His name was Paul. You remember when he's writing in Corinthians, he goes, you need to see the risen Lord to be one of these. And then he goes, but, and in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks later, he goes, the Lord appeared to Mary, then Cephas, then the, you know, the two guys on the road, and then the 12. And then he says, and finally to me, like one born out of due time. See, Paul called himself an apostle. So I'm going to do my Lieutenant Columbo thing here. So I don't understand. There's only 12. Then Paul's like clearly opening every letter saying, I'm an apostle. And by the way, here's a hint. He's special too. He's the 13th warrior. Okay? God added one just to mess us up. But Paul says that. I was like one born out of due time. There will never be apostles like these guys again. So you're like, okay, he's not a nut. Okay. I was checking to see where he came from, you know? Where did you say you were from again? Not a nut. But the Bible, to use a big word, equivocates. That means the same word can have different meanings in different contexts. Why do you think there were 12? Why are they called the 12? Why did Jesus pick 12 of those guys? 12 tribes of Israel. Right. Where did they primarily minister all those guys? Except for Peter and John, who took off later and opened up new networks. After Paul, by the way. Who was the apostle to the... Ding, there it is. That's why Paul was added. Because someone had to be the 13th warrior to open the same kind of ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, that is why Paul says this. Helps when I use my notes. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Make sense? And Paul even made fun of the false teachers who claimed to be apostles on an equal level to the 12. And he called them, for they claimed to be super apostles. That's so funny. He didn't laugh. That's really funny. <laughs> Paul smack talks good sometimes, you know. They claim to be super apostles. I love that. He's making fun of them. He's going, they're not the 12. They're not on that level. I may be, but 
but they're not. You don't get to join the secret club that I belong to. But the scripture starts to use the same word. It's Paul who's doing it to his co-workers, his partners in the faith. Um, first off, Barnabas is mentioned. Um, the word apostolos is used of Barnabas in Acts 14, verse 14. And, and now he would qualify, but he's not, it's not used in that way. It's used when he becomes a missionary. Remember, he goes up to Antioch. It makes sense. We see him. He's the first Jerusalem missionary. So it's used of him. But then it's used of Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.23. It's used of James, the Lord's brother, not the James you know, in Galatians 1.18-19. Apollos, 1 Corinthians 4.6-9. Andronicus, Romans 16.7. Junius, Romans 16.7. Epaphroditus, Philippians 2.25. Timothy, had the same word. And, and notice the thing that's in common with all these guys. They're missionaries. First century missionaries. They weren't pastors. They weren't at Starbucks drinking coffee and reading theology. They were frontline missionaries. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 6, includes Timothy and Silvanus in that passage using the word apostolos for them all. So what's Paul doing? He's just saying there are guys who function differently than pastors. In fact, make note of this in church history. Whenever you see the kingdom of God or the gospel, when it's been stuck for a while, have you ever, you ever wondered like how the gospel gets unstuck in culture and, and in communities? Have you seen that in church history? You know, this little thing called the Dark Ages? And then we have this thing called the Reformation. By the way, Calvin, when he wrote about it, he thought his eyes were playing tricks on him like tiny round devils. His, in one sense, his theology wouldn't allow him. He's like, oh, I don't know, it's kind of dodgy ground. But he admits it may be in these days that God has sometimes raised up apostles. And then he backtracks quickly and goes, but if not, for sure evangelists. He's a little worried, you know, like we all should, because there's weirdos and freaks out there. But what if the term just meant missionary? So why all that preamble? Because there's been a lot of damage done over the years. And, and what it's done is because we don't want to use, like we don't get that these are gifts to the church to fill. It means that we've been showing the world the leg of Jesus and the arm of Jesus. Hey guys, here's Jesus. Hey world, here's Jesus and all his fullness is going to fill all things. And I know there's only four limbs. Bear with me here but we haven't been showing them who Jesus really is. You see, for the last, I, I would say since, by the way, if you read the anti-Nicene fathers, the guys who preceded that, they actually talk about these roles in full swing. And then when Constantine comes in, remember his convert or die uh, methodology of, of evangelism? You're all now Christians in my emperor, empire, convert or die. It's a very effective method of events, very convincing. Um, all of a sudden, he institutionalized the church and made it a, a government-run thing. There then became offices, and they became bishops, which are pastors, and they had teachers. They, he's first saying, iron out truth. Iron out what the church actually believes. Before that, there were apostles, there were prophets, all these things. You can find these writings, however... For the last 1,700 years, we lost that. And every time you see in church history this punctuated equilibrium where there's like, almost if you're looking at the sun, you know how like you see a, a solar flare? It's like that happens in the kingdom of God. You see all of a sudden like, boom, the church breaks out. You'll always find someone apostolic in its midst, at the center of it. I mean... Somebody once came to me and said, Peyton, you're an, you're an apostle. Because what I do is I go into public spaces and start churches with unbelievers. It's kind of what Paul did. So I have a business card. It's in my, in my car. It's a ninja throwing star. And I tell people I'm a church planning ninja because I steal all the shadows and strike hard. And then pff, I'm going back into the shadows. I don't stay when I plant a church. I do what Paul did. So I have a little ninja and then I can throw it at people. It's fun. Except I ask people not to sue me at conferences when I throw them out to the audience. They are sharp. Made out of heavy cardstock. But somebody came to me years ago and said, Pete, you're apostolic. 
And I remember just looking at him. We were having coffee, and he was really cool, and he was a professor in a seminary. And I remember just going, I get what you're saying, but my theology doesn't allow for me to believe what you're saying right now. Because I hadn't looked deeper at what the Scripture was saying. See, if you use the word apostolic type leader, it doesn't mean that you have superpowers. You don't write Bible in your spare time. You don't have any authority. I mean, Paul just, you know, I love how like Titus tells Paul, he says, I asked Titus, and Titus said no. <laughs> you know, love that. I asked him to come, and he didn't. You know, he didn't have godlike powers, Paul. He would sometimes refer to his authority as a guy who had special revelation. Nobody, no missionary today can claim it. Just think missionary and you're safe. These five different roles. But one of the things that opened me up is I love church history. And I you know, read about guys like J. Hudson Taylor, William Carey, George Whitfield, um, William Booth of the Salvation Army, um, uh, Luther. Um, did I say Whitfield, Carey, Taylor, Hudson? Yeah. All these guys, you know what they have in common? The church owes an immense debt to each of these in propelling the gospel and getting the church unstuck, and yet not a single one of them was a pastor. Ever thought of that? It was like they were something else. And I like to think of apostolics as kind of like, and not the denomination. Again, there's so much baggage here. That's why I'm going to this apologetic. That what we're really talking about here is there are people that penetrate culture with the gospel, and they apply it in a new context, and they catalyze a movement. Amen? That's what Martin Luther was. That's what all these guys were. And if you're going, oh, how could we lose something for 1,700 years? Just ask Martin Luther, who in 1,500 and something decided, I think I'll rediscover the grace of God. You know, the gospel. 1,500 years. That was a long time to come back around, wouldn't you say? So don't think, church, like this ain't the first time that we've had something really big but it's kind of like Indiana Jones, if you ever watch Indiana Jones, and he's uncovering the well of souls, right? That's where the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant is. He uncovers it, and as he's about, all the, all the guys run away that are helping him. They're like, don't open that. I understand the fears. I get it. Because there's a lot of room for people to just act stupid. But here's the reality. If the church doesn't begin to function with all five of these gifts and team, then it's kind of like we're not really using the gifts that Jesus, those kit bags. We're trying to do it on one and two. When I was a kid, there was a, a Kung Fu theater. It was on TV Sunday afternoons. Can I get any amens? Anyone remember Kung Fu theater? Remember that bamboo sound? Doop, 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 doop. And the guy would be like flying the little silhouette across the screen. I remember watching one. I'm not even making this up. It was a Kung Fu film, best Kung Fu film I've ever seen. This guy's walking, minding his own business, walking through a hayfield, and all of a sudden, these guys jump out of haystacks, and they've got, like, straw, like, on them. They're like camouflage. You've been hiding in the haystack. They go, yeah, like a transformer, and they jump out, you know, with all this hay, and if they go back, and they look like haystacks again, and they all jump out, and they start fighting him, and he goes like this, whoosh. his finger starts, it's the kung fu finger. It starts moving at the speed of lightning. And he's just, these guys are throwing all these guys covered in the hay around, whoosh, and they're whoosh, flying over the fences. Whoosh, you know, Kung Fu, whoosh, it was rad. And I remember as a kid going, I want a Kung Fu finger. Like you would when you're eight. We all know the Kung Fu finger's a myth. And the pastor-only model is a myth we created. That one guy can do it all. That one, you know, this pastor, hey, leave it to us. We're the professionals. The opposite is true. God gives you these five roles to pull something out of you that's going to just cause you to grow and look more like Jesus. You see, there's a tension here. When the apostolic guy pulls on you, it's not like the evangelist just wants you to go tell people about Jesus. The apostolic guy wants to mobilize the entire church to do crazy stuff. So the amount of times that I've like been with all my team, and I'm like, 
I got it. We're gonna, in Long Beach. We're in a dangerous neighborhood in Long Beach. We're going to go. We're going to get that gas station on the corner of 7th and Atlantic. It's two main arteries. We're going to plant there. And they're like, Peyton, what about the drive-bys that happen on that corner? I got this all figured out. You know the pit? We're going to put the kids down in there. And Sunday school is going to happen with Sunday school table, pipe cleaners, construction paper. We got it. And the shepherd goes, um, hey, Peyton, like, we got families and stuff. This always happens. The counter to the apostle, apostolic type, is the shepherd. Hey, we got to think of the people we're taking with us, right? Because if, if I lead the church alone, church becomes a mission station. If the prophetic type leader, we haven't really talked about him, if he leads the church by himself, it becomes a circus. I'm down with the supernatural. I'm all about that. I've seen it. Used to not believe in that either until I went to the mission field. Used to be a cessationist. I mean, when people get healed in front of you, it's kind of hard to not believe in it anymore. <laughs> Evangelist. That guy. He turns his church into a stadium crusade. If he's by himself. Shepherd. He turns his church into a therapy session. It's like focus on the family every week. <laughs> Teacher. He turns his church into a classroom. And people know a lot about Jesus, but they don't do anything. I like to call this fist leadership. Remember the Kung Fu finger? You see... Your finger isn't going to kick anybody's butt, but if you put all five of those fingers together, it can pack a punch for gospel impact. So if you look at this, you've got, this is your prophetic guy. He's in the, in the meetings with red tape. He's cutting through that all the time going, hey, this, I don't care about any of this. What does God have to say about this? He always wants to get back to the heart of God. He's always pointing to God's glory. Hey, what does God say about this? What does God feel about this? What does God think about this? I'm going to tell you the next finger. Just picture with me, I'm holding up my middle finger. For honorable purposes. And let me tell you, that's the finger that brings the offense of the gospel. So Paul says, cross is an offense. He's always focused around the cross of Jesus. You listen to him, the evangelist pulls on you. You know what's great about the evangelist? He doesn't just get you as an individual to share the gospel. He gets you to experience the gospel. You hear him preach, it's like you get saved all over again. The shepherd, he's the ring finger. He's the relationship guy. That's what he's saying. You know, he's all about, hey, we're a family. Family, you need to bond. You need to come close together. And lastly, the pinky, that's the teacher. Because, you know, when you, I lived in Britain for 12 years, you know, there's a way to drink tea, even for men. They cook and garden there. It's, get off your stereotypes. So a little cup of tea there. Got to have your, your pinky. This etiquette. That's like the teacher. He's, he's all concerned about theological etiquette and exactness. You know, he wants everything to be, no, no, that's wrong. Right? Now, uh, we have whole movements that are polarized on these gifts. I don't know if you've ever seen this in the body of Christ. I told you I believe in the supernatural, but imagine if you put a Tim Keller next to a guy like Bill Johnson and they were on the same team. That's how Jesus intended it. Because Keller would be like, hey, I've never seen God do that. Wow, that was neat. I read about that in Acts. But Keller's going to make sure everything they do better have been seen somewhere in Acts. Make sense? That's weird over there. We don't do that. And there's a balance. You see, that's the power. That's the fist. you imagine if we came together like that? That is kingdom impact. And we were meant to deliver a knockout punch throughout the ages. And it's kind of like, you know, where Jesus says in that parable, he goes, an enemy has done this. We were meant to to be together. You see, we were meant to have the saints equipped, and you're going to need all five to do it for you. I wish I ended on a better note, but it's time for me to end. But I hope you realize the end of all this, guys, is Jesus, who he is, glorifying him to the world. And that's for you. That's not for your leaders. A leader's job, whether it's apostolic type, prophetic type, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, it's meant to show you who Jesus is and to develop a different part of Jesus 
in your life that you would radiate him out brighter to the world. And in doing that, you guys, we would have a forward movement like never before. One last thing. One thing to note about this ratio. Um, if I can just literally 30 seconds. These three, apostle, prophet, and evangelist, they are your radicals. Shepherds and teachers are your conservatives. I'll leave you with this. Over the last however many years in the church, centuries, who would you say has been running the show? Radicals or conservatives? Okay, unanimous. Interesting. How did God tip the scale on a three to two ratio towards conservatism or radicalism? We are a missionary movement. We are meant to take kingdom ground, expand the kingdom. To do that, we have to be ever leaning forward. We have to be aggressive, radical, forward movement. More concerned with taking ground than keeping ground. Keeping ground is important, right? It's kind of like the Marines. We're in a military town. The Marines take the ground. The Army keeps the ground, holds the ground, right? There's a three to two ratio in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you, Lord, this morning for just giving us this time and allowing me, Lord, to, to, to maybe um, share these things um, from a passage that just gets me so excited, Lord, but it's more what Paul said earlier about that love, that love of God that surpasses knowledge, Lord. We sung a song that just said that is, that is how we know your glory. That's how we know your love, not that we did anything for you, Lord, but that you died for us. Here is love. Lord, we want to ask this morning that you would inflame our hearts, Lord, for kingdom advancement. Lord, that word equip is so exciting. It means that you want to use me like a knucklehead, like Peter, like all these guys. It's all about the cross. I can be beat up. I can be battered. I can feel worthless. And what I'm preaching, what I'm advancing is a gospel and a kingdom whose king is the prince of peace and the creator of grace. Lord, we want to thank you for who you are. Because, Lord, if we strip you out, Jesus, of any of this, it's worthless and a waste of time. It's all about you, Lord. Help us to see these scriptures pop alive to us and to get excited like Paul was and Timothy and Titus and all those were in the first century because they see it. Open our eyes and show it to us from your word, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.